Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And Jeff, we are talking about part 10 of Twin Peaks, a.k.a. the episode when we learned that Candy is the most important character (laughs) in Twin Peaks history. (laughs) Jeff, we we are officially past the halfway point of this season. Um, Fair to say, this is not what I was expecting from this episode, and yet, in the end, actually, given the appearance of the log lady, maybe it was exactly the episode we were expecting. Uh, What what did you think about part 10 in general? Just like uh, general thoughts and their reactions. Yeah, you know, Darren, my initial reaction, which I texted you, was not my favorite episode of Twin Peaks so far. I think that if I had to rank them all, it would be toward toward the bottom. Uh, that said, it, I would rank them toward the bottom of uh, just generally excellent episodes so far. The log lady moment that you identified, though, was kind of a, a reframing for me. It kind of helped me kind of see this episode, I think, in the way in which it was intended. Yes, we are here at the halfway point. We have a moment that reminds us of the first moment with the log lady, the only moment with her so far, which happened at the beginning of the uh, of the season, which sort of like framed Hawk's mission, framed big cosmic doings in the world. So by having her come back and give us a little bit of a new prophecy by kind of like re- reminding us very, very definitively about the presence of Laura Palmer in the story, reminding us of uh, this fallen world of Twin Peaks and really kind of this whole episode seemed to be framing all of the world of, tw- of Twin Peaks in, 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 in a sort of like very specifically explicitly metaphorically as a sort of real fallen place almost in a biblical sense that it's a, it's a place that needs saving or is either dying uh, for good. <laughs> so uh, good men are needed. Good True men, true men like the Truman brothers, or maybe even these other vague men that she mentioned. I'm thinking maybe the Bookhouse Boys, Darren. Um, so yeah, so it was a, a reframing episode that sets us on the course for the second half of the season, framing a sort of like world that's that's dark and, and, and needs to be saving. It can be saved at all, but, but who's going to do it? We're going to find out. So I, I struggle with the episode a little bit. Like we'll talk about the Vegas stuff in a minute. I know you loved it. I loved it a little less. I'm kind of ready for us to kind of like uh, hit the accelerator on that. It gave us some uh, good moments um, and some silly moments. Dougie! <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't wait to talk with you about that. But why don't we start with the one of the most intriguing moments Let's start in Buckhorn, uh, where we got a night and at the Mayfair Hotel, and maybe one of the sweeter moments of the episode. This is a very bleak episode, sketching a very bleak, dark world. But um, let's just start with the few moments that happened in Buckhorn before going elsewhere, because those were some you know sweet moments, but also very intriguing moments. So we started the first scene that we got in, in Buckhorn. The FBI crew is staying at this place called, I believe, the Mayfair Hotel. And we got this lovely little moment where Albert was dining alone with his new crush, Constance. What did Gordon Cole call her? The the morgue lady? (laughs) (laughs) 
Did you catch that? <laughs> I missed that. I, I, I think it's great because in fairness, I think I've called her the morgue lady on at least two or three occasions. So I, I, I loved that little bit of business. That was the in an episode that I found by turns totally baffling and totally disturbing. I thought that was a really wonderful human moment, of which there were a few others also. But I did find it a little bit interesting, just the sort of balance of it, that we moved right from that. And, you know, just this whole little sequence of, you know, you, you, you kind of see Albert and Constance dining and you can't hear what they're saying and you see kind of Gordon and Tammy watching them and there's just a real feeling of almost a show like Picket Fences or something, you know? Like, oh, this is such a delightful, very, you know, romantic view of, 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 of these characters. To go right from there to really maybe the most baffling and disturbing scene in the episode, not necessarily in terms of the violence of it all, but in terms of what the larger implications of it were, we go to Gordon inside of his hotel room. He's doing a little bit of doodling, and I, I, I loved the sort of close-up on the cartoon that he had been drawing, and if you flipped it upside down, it was sort of a strange and somewhat ethereal woodland figure with antlers that almost seemed to be tree branches. The, 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 the sort of thing that like I'd love to dive into deeper, but I'm also aware that Lynch might have literally just kind of sketched that spur of the moment while the camera was was filming him but to cut from that he gets a knock on the door opens the door and suddenly there's Laura Palmer I, I believe Laura Palmer in a sequence taken from Twin Peaks Firewalk with me that was interesting upon re-watching it I still don't think I totally get that for all different kinds of reasons you know not sure Gordon Cole as a character, why he would necessarily receive that vision. It makes sense to me why David Lynch as a sort of character within this would get that vision. But I will just say, uh, on the note of not understanding it, but maybe understanding it, when he opened the door and saw Laura Palmer, he was kind of looking up off screen to the right, which I think is the same direction that Laura Palmer disappeared into in the Black Lodge way back at the end of the season premiere. N not really sure what that means, though, Jeff. Did, uh, did you have any kind of more profound interpretation of why Laura, why Buckhorn, why Gordon Cole are like the main three questions that I had after that moment? <laughs> yeah, so walk through that scene just a little bit, how I saw it. Yeah, I think the whole idea of Gordon Cole drawing that picture is important for you know, maybe understanding why this happened to him. And it seems to kind of bleed and blur into the whole David Lynch of it all. And what we know about David Lynch, this dream artist, this guy who practices transcendental meditation, will center himself to write himself, but but also as a sort of a means for creativity. You got the, I got the sense that as he's drawing this sort of surreal dream figure, uh, which I took to be kind of a, a strange reindeer creature, which would make sense in an episode that had a lot of Advent and Christmas themes throughout, um, strangely enough and weird enough, and we'll get to that when we get to Twin Peaks. So it's this strange dream creature. And another motif in that same picture, this arm reaching into this space from beyond the margins, reaching toward it. I just got the sense of a dream imagery, but also maybe things from outside the realm reaching into reality. And next to that picture, I don't know if you saw that, but we saw that strange little red device 
that looks like a, a sibling device to that black device that Dirty Cooper called um, when he was in prison, when he called um, uh, several episodes ago, when he called that black box in Buenos Aires sitting in that wooden bowl, and then it kind of blinked, and all of a sudden it dissolved into a little puddle of silver. Well, it appears that that Gordon Cole has his own version of that same device, only it's red. So here's David Lynch, this dream logic artist, kind of engaged in this sort of like very uh, drawing, this surreal uh, drawing that he, I, I'm taking like he's just pulling out of the ether from wherever David Lynch gets his ideas next to this magic box that I got, might, might be like a, a psychic two-way radio is the word that I came to mind <laughs> because David Lynch often likens himself to a radio. The creative process is a radio like picking up signals out of the air and then he processes that and then he kind of puts it out in the world in form of art and images. With all of that said, what we're seeing here is, and boy, Lynch really wanted us to focus in on that image, didn't he? Because not only did it, was he just doodling, but when he hears the knock at the door, the camera like zooms in on it so that we can see it. And we remember that Gordon Cole has a hearing issue, so he has this sort of hearing aid. And there have been other sort of like hints throughout this uh, season that he has almost like extrasensory, like psychic powers. Like I'm reminded of that moment um, earlier in the season when Albert came to him and confessed like having some contact with Dirty Cooper and Agent Jeffries. And you got the sense that like Cooper was like a Gordon Cole was a little disappointed with him. He was like, Albert, Albert. And there is that long silence where we hear kind of a humming. And it was almost like I got the sense in that moment that Cole was scanning him, searching him psychically to see maybe if he could still trust him and then determining that yes. So we just get this figure, this idea that Gordon Cole has like a, a psychic receiver of some kind. Uh, years of studying Blue Rose cases. Uh, maybe, I, I want to know now the secret origin of Gordon Cole because there's something really mysterious about him. So with that said, why does this vision of Laura Palmer come to him? Well, I mean, you know, it makes sense. It's almost like he's become like this psychic beacon for these kinds of things. But we are led to believe that Laura, the spirit of Laura Palmer is at loose in this world. You know, she was taken out of the the, the, the Black Lodge. There was that moment several a couple episodes ago where we got that, that myth of Mr. Question Marks, the, 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 the character formerly known as the giant, like sending Laura Palmer into the world through a golden ball. We don't know if that was sort of like a, a metaphor for her origins and for setting some kind of history in motion or maybe her reincarnation. I just get the sense that the spirit, the fiery spirit of Laura Palmer is either at loose in the world or trying to break back into the world, Darren. And so that the fact that we have our, you know, we have our two psychic characters speaking or seeing Laura in this episode, Gordon Cole and the log lady. It, 
I'm just saying that in the crazy world of Twin Peaks, it makes total sense to me. <laughs> yeah, well, and and like one thing I should mention too, everything you just said made me realize that there's been this running idea of electricity as some sort of yes. u- universe connecting magic, for for lack of a better and more profound word. And I I am realizing that just Gordon Cole with his sort of hearing aid and you know the sort of constant almost audio motif of the feedback he's getting, there is a sort of vivid sense of him being perhaps locked into that world, which is interesting. Also interesting to get a vision of Laura Palmer when in fact the person who is actually at his door is Albert with information about (laughs) another woman who was tied into Bob and the sort of darker Black Lodge entities. Um, Just to kind of like dive into that a little bit. Here's what happened in the scene and here's my interpretation of that scene. Um, Albert walks in, uh, sadly seems as if his date with Constance was interrupted by the truly tragic news. <laughs> that news being that Albert has in fact discovered the text message that Diane received from Dirty Cooper, the text message about the, the seemingly coded phrase that he sent through. And he informs us there was a response text, and the text which apparently came from Diane was, they have Hastings, he's going to take them to the site. This is, of course, a reference to the fact that William Hastings, um, before he goes scuba diving, it seems as if he is going to take the FBI agents to the site of whatever other dimension (laughs) the zone is meant to be. Now... Maybe I'm just so fervently holding on to the idea that Diane cannot possibly be evil. I, I I find the implications of her getting down with Cooper's particular brand of sickness to be kind of disturbing, although, you know, intrigued to see where that would go. But right after we're kind of given this information, um, and, you know, we should note that Diane herself doesn't really appear in this episode at all. You get this interesting shot outside of Gordon's hotel room of Tammy kind of walking in slow motion and knocking on his door. Now, I've I've been hard on the Tammy Preston is up to something theory for a very long time, and I realize that now I'm just getting further entrenched in that theory, but I think Tammy's up to something. I don't think it's Diane. That's my, like, hopeful uh, version of where that scene is going, because if, if Diane is actually a traitor, I'm intrigued to go back and rewatch that scene between her and Dirty Cooper in the interrogation room, but it also seems like it takes something that had felt very powerful and disturbing to me, and it makes it less powerful and more disturbing. Does that make any sense, Jeff? I don't know. I'm still kind of struggling with that aspect of the episode, and the fact that we didn't really see Diane, and this is all kind of information given to us second or third hand, makes me wonder how suspicious we should be about her, about where her loyalties lie. I'm also, yeah, and also, I, I will say, though, to counter that, on the point of Gordon being a sort of mystic, the fact that he could apparently tell Diane loyalties by hugging her that felt very Twin Peaksy <laughs> to me so I, I, I don't know still kind of struggling w- 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 with that I, I think more so than uh, than anything else in the episode 
I, I like, or maybe I don't like, maybe I'm worried about your deep-seated distrust and mistrust of Tammy, Darren, um, <laughs> which seems kind of like, you know, uh, thematically fitting in an episode, which again, dealt with a lot of biblical fallenness, um, dealt with enmity between men and women, husbands and wives of men who are just, you know, evil, but like distrusting, like the, the women kind of viewing them as, 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 as treacherous in their lives. Like, but yeah, I will say that was a weird shot, right? Like, why did we cut out of the room for that kind of slow-mo shot of, of, of Tammy? That was, that was just an odd decision. That might've been just a storytelling thing. Like we needed just to cut away from that scene briefly. And, and, and so we can reset with the separate scene. Um, it could have been trying to suggest something. I'm not sure. But I, I wanted to say that you, in your analysis of that scene with Albert coming in, uh, I was struck by you know the link between Albert and Laura, right? And what Albert represents. So um, you know, Albert is is the guy that works with with the dead bodies in the world of Twin Peaks. You know, he and Constance. You know, so he is this kind of some like figure of death, and he did examine Laura. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is some kind of like connection there between. Uh, Gordon Cole, like seeing the spirit of Laura uh, attached to this sort of like, you know, death figure, if you will, um, (laughs) in Twin Peaks. But yeah, that bad news that he brought in and yeah, sorry to interrupt your date, uh, Albert, but so, so that, that the treachery that of Diane, yeah, we, I think we talked about this last week. I too would be really disappointed if we're to find out I was so struck by the power of that scene several episodes ago with when, when Diane confronted her abuser in the form of Dirty Cooper. And now the power of that scene and the meaning is up for grabs because the meaning of that scene is in question. Um, you know, it, it could still mean everything that we thought it could be. It just there's more to it than than we know and we'll find out. I do come back to this idea that Dirty Cooper seems to either have something on everyone or maybe even infects people with his evil and and maybe even has psychic powers over them. So maybe in that moment in which she confronted him, you know, he either magically psychically activated some control over her or... My other theory is that he, he, he's blackmailing her. He, he knows something about her and she has long known that maybe this day would come when he would re-enter her life and when it did happen, she would have to play out a role for him and she knows what that is and she has no choice but to do it. So yeah, um, uh, but again, like I, I want to love Diane. And uh, so uh, this is, I'm not really criticizing the show as much as I'm kind of like confessing kind of like what I want her to be all good. Yeah. I want her to be all good. But Tammy brought some news, too. Could you describe that news that Tammy brought Cole and Albert? Jeff, I'm glad you asked. I have great news. Uh, Tammy had <laughs> produced a picture. Uh, this is taken from those mysterious sort of photo tapes, not an actual term for them, memory cards, whatever you want to call them, magic technology, doesn't matter. Uh, she had photos taken from the mysterious glass box. The first and certainly not the last mystery of this season of Twin Peaks. Uh, She had had an image, the earliest image she claimed, implying this came from right after the box was built. 
And on that image, Jeff, can you believe it? We saw John Justice Wheeler played by Billy Zane. Yes, it turns out. <laughs> that he, was incredible. He was the anonymous billionaire. Who could have guessed it? Um, no, uh, confirming uh, a theory that <laughs> confirming a theory that simultaneously, like I, I almost kind of haven't dug into this enough, but this is like one could argue the most important piece of information we got as far as like the broader macro scope of this season that yes, Dirty Cooper does seem to be the mysterious billionaire who built the glass box. Now, Jeff, we've thrown out at least like 10 different theories about the glass box. And I, I honestly kind of forget like which ones we landed on involved Dirty Cooper being in charge. But I, I guess this certainly does strongly imply that like this glass box was a mechanism by which he was going to catch the good Dale or, but you know, by which he was going to entrap the good Dale, which for me really complicates everything that's happening with Dale right now. It, it it does kind of leave you on this interesting fact of, you know, to what extent is Dale still kind of trapped? To what extent was this always part of the plan? And to what extent have other forces been sort of counteracting whatever Dirty Cooper was up to? Uh, Jeff, uh, your reactions to the, the apparent end of the anonymous billionaire mystery? Yeah, well, I think now little bits and pieces, we can at least theorize about them. I mean, we know that maybe at some point after Dirty Cooper entered the world, he went down into South America and became a billionaire, like drug lord or some kind of underworld figure where he's living in sort of Miami Vice <laughs> cliffside mansions and and all of that. And just, you know, yeah, totally looking like a, a Miami Vice villain. But you wondered now if uh, if he came into the world with a specific mission to raise a lot of money by any means necessary to build this very expensive piece of technology in New York City to capture something. Um, was it Agent Cooper? Was it some sort of long play to guarantee his uh, continued existence um, in this world that he would never go back to the Black Lodge um, so that he can pursue uh, other missions, some other kind of grand scheme? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, if, if I'm piecing everything together and forming a theory, we, uh, we, we might guess that building that box was a necessary ingredient for the scheme that involved creating a manufacturing a double of himself in the form of of Dougie and that um, that box was designed to capture Cooper um, and then redirect him to Vegas uh, so that he would swap out with Dougie so that Dirty Cooper's assassins could kill him when he stepped out. Um, so I, I think that's that's very possible. Um, I think it's also possible that that maybe Dirty Cooper was trying to catch something else. I, I am intrigued by uh, uh, going back to that Ace of Spades card that he has transformed into the image of what appears to be the experiment, also believed to be Mother. Uh, and we, we know that that box captured uh, it, her, whatever that is. Uh, could he have been fishing for her, uh, for, for, for experiment? And we also know that he seems to be hunting for those coordinates, which we know from having gone to Bill Hastings' website, uh, searchforthezone.com, um, after we uh, watched the episode and uh, did our podcast last week, we, we, we did homework. And 
we, uh, or, or maybe we covered it in last week's podcast, but we found out those coordinates uh, refer to something called Lookout Mountain, which immediately calls to mind everything from Dr. Amp's Lookout Mountain <laughs> over there in Twin Peaks to the Giant's Lookout Mountain, the, the White Lodge um, in, in, in metaphysical ultraviolet space. So uh, we have reason to suspect that Dirty Cooper is is hunting for this place or some entrance into the White Lodge. So maybe the box factors into that. Like, I'm now less convinced than ever that I know what Dirty Cooper really wants in this world, because it seems like he wants to get out of the world into some other world, uh, that, that being in this world is a means to, he wants to stay alive, but being here is a means to a different end, one that kind of leads him to some transcendent place. So what does Dirty Cooper want? I'm, 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 I'm intrigued. Yeah, I realize that like with each passing episode that I know less and less about what he wants, which I think is very interesting. I almost kind of hope that like that <laughs> I almost kind of hope that we never find out because it is just so tantalizing that like somehow the first <laughs> somehow the first time we saw him, I thought I had a pretty good handle on it and now I'm honestly like I just don't like lodges zone. I don't know. Got to do more homework. You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast with Jeff Jensen and Darren Franich. You know, just a quick pause here because I want to talk about something very important. It's tough to find great talent these days. Just look at, you know, someone like Sheriff Frank Truman. He's a smart guy. Even he hired Chad, the worst policeman of all time. Imagine what would have happened if he had ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than everyone else. That's why they're different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. That means no juggling emails or calls to your office. You just screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. You can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, zero dollars. Just go to ZipRecruiter dot com slash twin peaks that's ziprecruiter.com slash twin peaks jeff uh let's shift gears a little bit over to the wonderful town of twin peaks where just a lot of nasty things going on there in this episode yeah. um, much of it adjacent to a character who is truly revealing himself as not even like evil on like the sort of bob black lodge level just like a real awful douchebag um richard horn uh remarkably in the in the race for world's worst horn he has really managed to like step to to the forefront um we see him at the beginning he goes to visit miriam in her trailer miriam of course delightful uh local person last seen outside of the double r diner uh she tells him that she knows it was him who ran that boy over she claims that she told the police this and also claims that she sent the sheriff's a uh, letter in the mail seeming to protect herself. Uh, this just makes him more angry. And in a really like sort of artfully 
awful moment. You sort of see him smash his way into her trailer, and then the camera just kind of lingers outside, and it's just entirely, you know, the audio of what's going on leaves so much to the imagination. And, uh, you know, he then sort of, like, leaves. He phones his uh, local corrupt lawman, Chad, and tells him to intercept the mail. And just to kind of focus in on, 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 on something that I found kind of confusing, Jeff, and I've gone back and rewatched it a couple times. We cut inside of the trailer. I believe Miriam is still breathing, although you know, just you know, a kind of horrifying tableau of you know post-violent abuse disturbance. You kind of see that like her head has clearly been hit by the oven door. There's kind of blood pooling around her. P- perhaps we can glean that she is like certainly not in a good place, but it was. I do think she was still <laughs> breathing, and I, I wasn't sure like you know if, if we're to interpret that. It, wasn't quite sure how to interpret that. But I know that you kind of really gravitated to certain elements of of decoration around her house. Uh, do you want to kind of like uh, talk about those a little bit and how that might relate to the episode as a, as a whole? Yeah, who cares about story? It's all about art direction for me. Um, <laughs> oh, Jeff, wait till we get to, to the red balloons, okay? We're going to get there in a second. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, accentuating and embellishing the whole like darkness and disturbing nature of it all and these, you know, the, the the lockdown shot that Lynch provides, this establishing shot of Miriam's trailer, this quaint little green trailer surrounded by a garden. It, it's, it's it's almost Eden-esque um, for, for Twin Peaks. Um, and then this, you know, big bad wolf, evil devil, like Richard Horn, like storms in and kills her. And just in addition, just to the, the sickening sounds of it all, the violence that is taking place inside that trailer causes it to rock like the sickening thud causes it to just really kind of jolt these sort of like textural moments like are, 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 are as unsettling as, as seeing the violence itself. Also kind of note in this episode, just the use of language. Uh, Lynch is, you know, in his more extreme works, is fond of just extremely like salty, cursy language. And like the language in this episode was maybe even more violent than the physical violence itself. And um, and, and Lynch has specialized that in, in over the years too, like with his dark demonic characters using a uh, you know, choice four-letter words issued with just utter vile sincerity to almost like psychically and verbally like assault victims, a very Lynchian thing to do, but accentuating then all of this violence, all of this fallenness, um, if you will, all of this sinfulness again, not to get biblical about it, but but Miriam's like uh, trailer was decorated with curiously like out of season, like Christmas motifs. <laughs> um, so she had like a Christmas tree, um, like in, in the window, she had candy canes on the fence around her garden. I think there was a Santa riding a reindeer, um, that are all that also attached to these things. We have a little angel motif in the garden. Yeah. So like, uh, like again, in, in an episode where you're kind of dealing with a lot of sort of biblical fall myth being expressed in a variety of ways, and you have all of these Christmas motifs. Um, it kind of just accentuated the whole you know, feeling of, of, of evil that, and the, the sad everything is shit state of the world that Lynch is portraying. 
But if you're if you're with me in saying that there, it's all encoded with biblical allusions, in an episode that dealt with prophecy and 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 visions of spirits coming, perhaps this is sort of like an Advent episode, as I say in my recap. You know, like um, it's always darkest before hope breaks into the world. So this is a very dark episode, but it seemed to be kind of like signaling that something is coming, uh, whether it's Christ or Antichrist, we don't know. Um, but yeah, I thought all of these motifs and symbols um, weren't just random expressions of character. I think that's how we should first understand it. Miriam is um, a, a Christmas buff, perhaps. We remember that she's uh, also like really into pastries. <laughs> um, when we met her, it was at the Double R Diner and she was eating pie and she kind of explained that she likes to go to various diners and and she's like a, a, a connoisseur of, of pastries. And if you notice that there in this episode was filled with like sweet stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, Dougie Cooper eating chocolate cake, um, the M&M cookies um, in the Horn household. Um, these are either nods uh, in memoriam to Miriam, um, um, but also kind of like motifs of sweetness, these little points of sweetness and light amidst darkness. So um, that, that uh, again, seemed very admin Christmas season too. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Um, Miriam, big Christmas buff. Yeah, and, and you know, Everything you're saying, Jeff, I think it all comes together in a very interesting way in this episode. Um, you know, we, we sort of move from that sort of truly disturbing scene in a trailer to an initially less disturbing and then more disturbing trailer moment um, where, yeah. uh, you know, we sort of get a great and to me very human sequence of Carl Rod singing a song that uh, I, I looked it up. It's been known as the Red River song. It's also known as the Cowboy Love song. Uh, beautiful beautiful moment with Harry Dean Stanton, who we should add, uh, turned 91 years old three days ago. So, I mean, you know, just this interesting moment of somebody who just in the world of Twin Peaks, I'm not sure that Carl Rod is a hero necessarily, but he certainly stands for, he certainly stands for something that is more... I'm trying to think of, of the right word. There's an energy around him that is certainly positive, even if all he ever really seems to do is just sort of bear witness to awful things that that, that are happening. And grieve it. You yeah. know, he's our balladier griever of the human condition. And, you know, when awfulness and catastrophe happens, he witnesses it. But like, as we saw him several episodes ago, he attends to it and grieves it. Um, but please continue because uh, he fulfills this function in some, in some form as this goes on. Exactly right. He, you know, uh, after this sort of like, you know, lovely, almost a full musical number, there, there, there were kind of two full musical numbers of this episode, which I yeah. did really, really appreciate. You know, he, you sort of hear this loud crashing. And indeed, this is <laughs> this, this is what I think Lynch's specific tropes and, and what he does with them are so wonderful. A coffee cup came crashing out of the window. <laughs> and we've discussed this, Jeff. Wasting coffee is like an all-time awful Black Lodge <laughs> sin in the realm of Twin Peaks. You know, Carl sees that. He sort of like mutters to himself like, ugh, like a fucking nightmare. And, you know, we may recall that like yeah. in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, he had a line about having a bad dream. And, the you know, the way that this figure seems to kind of interact with the world around him, it almost seems like he is the sort of like, you know, he is the kind of, you know, God who is like dreaming the world and all he seems to see is just total misery. And indeed, inside of the uh, tiny Burnett household, we, we kind of picked up again with Becky and Steven who are clearly – 
you know, just further down the spiral towards becoming the latter day version of, well, he's clearly, you know, this generation's Leo Johnson, if you will, like, you know, sort of interesting to see how Becky, like her mother before her, has found herself in this totally toxic and totally abusive relationship. He's just kind of yelling incoherences at her. Like, it's very clear that he's just sort of flying off the handle for drug reasons because he sort of is failing. You know, there's a lot of yelling about like not being able to afford a better house in which in which you recall that Leo Johnson, for all of his extremely awful aspects, was able to afford a pretty nice sized house. So even Stephen Burnett is even sort of worse than that somehow. And I was just struck by the fact that like, you know, Jeff, in your sort of um, initial write up of the episode, you made the point that like the women we see in part 10 of Twin Peaks are kind of like a little bit of everything, you know, strong, vulnerable, moral, mystic, brave, sweet, sexy, cunning. It strikes me that the men of this show, in this episode especially, are so kind of cleaved in half between the sort of older generation, whether it's Carl Rod or, as the log lady told us, the kind of true men, and the, the younger men who are almost exclusively like awful, vain, uh, you know, kind of narcissistic, abusive uh, personalities. And I, I you know, I, I will say like the image of kind of Amanda Seyfried like just sort of looking up at her abuser with total horror is something that really stuck with me but I I think that the move from Carl to Steven in that way felt very purposeful you you know like it it felt as if like you know there was this sort of attempt to provide some sort of moral counterbalance in 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 some ways which I found kind of interesting but yeah Stephen Burnett not a good guy we can confirm (laughs) (laughs) right yeah, that that whole little scene is this sort of like little little fable of 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 human fallenness and human brokenness, you know, the old Carl like singing this sort of nostalgic song about a Red River Valley and then kind of moving into our poor terrible fallen Adam and Eve figures like warring with each other and uh him uh, uh, just uh, abusing with her it's it's a, a sad state of affairs um the kind of sad state of affairs that could probably send our friend Dr. Amp on another kind of crazy rant um, <laughs> complaining about how everything is shit. Um, and and that rant, I could almost barely follow it. It just flows into all these sort of different ideas, many of which we've, we've heard before. And he worked himself up into another kind of like sputtery lather that requires him to like, you know, wipe his mouth with this red rag. And then once again, sell uh, all of his like, you know, doom and gloom um, about everything is shit is all just this infomercial for his like golden shovels. Um, But he has a very faithful listener, Darren, in the form of Nadine. And we, we once again cut to Nadine and, um, you know, she was once in, in this office-like setting like she was, I believe, last time, sipping her iced coffee, listening to him. And, and, and we get this, we, we learn something about Nadine. She's like maybe one of the most, like in this very simple scene, not a lot of language, she, she was one of the more positive representations of of anyone in this show, male or female. She's she's a small business owner now, we found out. She runs 
her uh, own drape shop. Um, what, what was it? Oh my run, god! Silent run drapes. Oh my god, Jeff! Run silent run drapes. I I just think that oh that that shot of the drape shop with the sort of <laughs> with the silent drapes kind of indeed running and the golden shovel in, in the window. I mean, I I just think like as as disturbing as this episode was, that was one of my favorite moments I have ever seen in anything. Oh, <laughs> that was and, so and genius! How how great is this? I mean, you know, we're sort of talking a lot about the the ruination of Twin Peaks as a universe and as a, as a, as a kind of spiritual concern how wonderful of a like 25 years later pickup that those silent drapes have now made nadine into a local business person of some great repute i was like oh this is great like like everything isn't terrible seemed to be the sort of main purpose of that sequence i thought Yeah, that, that, that was great. And she definitely seems rather enraptured with Dr. Amp, either because there's a kindred soul there. Uh, she can, you know, he's he's just a guy following his bliss up there on top of the, the you know, the, 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 the peaks of the American Hindu Kush. Um, maybe ha- she has a crush on him. I, I want to know more about Nadine's affection for Dr. Amp and, and the status of her relationship with Ed. We haven't seen Ed there's a number of like characters that we know from from the previous Twin Peaks that we know that are in the show and are coming, but we haven't seen yet. We haven't seen Audrey. We haven't seen Ed. We've only gotten a little bit of James, but we, we know that they're they're part of this. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out what what the relationships are. We went back to Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department where uh, uh, the delightfully scuzzy Chad got another delightfully scuzzy scene in which he seemed to be trolling Lucy. You know, he, he, he was waiting for the mailman to come so he can intercept the letter from Miriam. And as he's waiting for the, uh, for the mailman to come, he's, he's talking with Lucy. And uh, Lucy's like, hey, what are you doing up here? And he's like, oh, it's just, you know, like admiring the beautiful day. And, <laughs> and then he kind of like, yeah, quietly, subversively like trolls her. Like, I bet you and Andy are the kind of people who wake up every morning and delight in, a, in, in the beautiful day, aren't you? <laughs> And like and she's like, no, actually, sometimes we wake up and we we don't even think about much because we just got so much going on and like our clocks are broken sometimes and it just feels like like we don't know what time it is and like things go on forever and 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 I I got the sense that Lucy was actually kind of like uh, charmed and even liked the fact that Chad showed interest in her life. <laughs> <laughs> and so let me go on about it. Um, but then the mailman comes comes and he's like, uh, uh, "Never mind." And he and he and he, and he walks out on her, and uh, he intercepts that letter and he hides it so that the, the sheriff's department remains oblivious to the fact that Richard Horn is the man who who did that hit and run. You know, we can all agree the moment in uh, part 16 when Chad gets swallowed whole by the golden orb with Bob's face inside of it will be a truly cathartic experience. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but Jeff, speaking of golden orbs with faces inside of it, let's talk about uh, what's going on <laughs> with old Johnny Horn, who it turns out... <laughs> I, I have to admit, 
This was not my favorite episode, Jeff, but I think the, the, the moment I'm about to describe is my favorite moment from the show so far. Um, we see that Johnny Horn fortuitously did survive his run-in with the wall last week. Uh, he's much worse for the wear. He's kind of tied up at his dinner table, and he seems to have a little buddy, let's call him it, um, with the body of a teddy bear and the face of a sort of blown up plastic, I think, or possibly glass. I've been sort of watching the scene a few times. A, a clear orb face with a yellow light glowing within and two gigantic like comic strip eyes sort of like almost almost pasted on. And the light seems to turn on and off. And it says on repeat over and over again, hello, Johnny, how are you today? <laughs> and, yeah, that... It- very nice British accent, by the way. <laughs> I don't want to. Hello, hello, Johnny. How are you today? No, it, it was not that bad. Um, but I thought the scene that played out with that in the kind of background, um, you know, we kind of get Richard Horn. He comes to see his grandmother, who, of course, was Audrey Horn's mother. Uh, the scene quickly spirals into truly disgusting and horrifying Richard Horn trademarked violence. He is demanding that she give him money. He starts strangling her. Johnny is sort of struggling to help, but he's been sort of tied down, seemingly for his own good, so he falls over on the floor. The teddy bear creature with the orb face keeps on saying, hello, Johnny, how are you today? And just... As far as creating a unique truly Lynchian tone... I thought this scene stood out for me even amidst the other moments this season because even just in the shots of Johnny, there were times when I almost was crying and times when I thought it was funny. And maybe that means I'm an insane person, Jeff. What did you, how did you kind of feel about this scene in general? Uh, Which, again, just deepening the, uh, you know, true uh, pathway of destruction that Richard Horn is kind of marking throughout the town of Twin Peaks. Yeah, I was really disturbed and unnerved by this whole scene rightly. Yeah, I mean, the fact that um, it's just this sort of like very, it's a very specific, it's literally and metaphorically, this just sort of depiction of boundaries being violated in multiple different ways. You know, uh, they live in a gated community. Um, you know, Sylvia Horn lives in a, 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 a gated community. I, I think that we got the sense that probably divorced from Benjamin Horn, yeah. raising and still taking care of Johnny. Richard is not welcome, so he apparently kind of bl- blows through the, the the gate. He drives in. He's not welcome in the home. Um, he's not going to take no for an answer. He's not even going to wait for an invite. He blows through into the home. He violently assaults his grandmother the language he uses with her is violent and and rapey and sexual like why is he talking to his grandmother like this 
he threatens her with 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 violence he threatens to do something worse to johnny um he threatens to cornhole him um I'm not sure up on my underworld violence speak but that doesn't sound too good you know he wants access to something that is denied to him he wants access to the safe she makes him cough up the combination Meanwhile, yeah, like that weird thing with with the, with the teddy bear, this sort of symbol of childhood innocence that has itself now been corrupted by having its head torn out. When you you see through that makeshift head, that that that's got to be a very David Lynch made sculpture thing, right? But you see through that sort of like lit up head, that blinking head with a candle, uh, electric candle inside, flicking on and off, and you just see like it looks like the head was torn off that thing actually. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so this sort of, you know, violated, corrupted symbol of innocence. And like Johnny is an interesting visual symbol in this, too, um, which is that he's he's basically in this sort of like blue outfit. And he's but he's kind of like in this makeshift straight jacket and he's bound by um uh, like ripped like white cloth that looks like by the hands and legs to the chair um you know after last week's sort of self-destructive act he can't be trusted he's he's got some kind of metal kind of mouthpiece in there in his mouth so that he can't like bite his tongue off or or something like that and so he's just this portrait of like you know in, in a sane of a person with no control over himself his mind his destiny whatever and the music cue through all of this is a song called Charmaine I believe mm-hmm. um and it's a it's a classic standard and if you kind of go do some research in terms of what it's when it's been used it's was most famously used um when you watch the show the episode on with with subtitles on all it says is like saccharine orchestral music plays <laughs> um but it's it's but it's charmaine the song is charmaine and it was most famously used in one flew over the cuckoo's nest it is the song that the that the mental institution plays to pacify all of the inmates within it and in the in the symbol system of one flew over the cuckoo's nest these mentally infirm people are actually symbols of you know uh, uh counterculture rebels and nonconformists and that the mental institution is this uh, place that is driving is a symbol for society that's driving people crazy so that sort of evocation of one flew over the cuckoo's nest in an, a larger episode that is sort of indicting um, a world gone crazy, but a society gone crazy because of the values, the wrong things um, in a moment in which we see Richard Horn just driven by the need and love for money to survive. Um, and he's willing to violate all sacred relationships to, to get it, to steal it. Um, there's a lot of things going on on the subtext of all of this. And, it was a very unsettling, subversive, fascinating scene. Yeah, uh, two things you maybe you maybe realize there, Jeff. One, um, you're so right about the teddy bear having been decapitated, which oddly ties back around to the core mystery element of this season: the the simultaneous decapitation of the librarian and the major uh, in 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 Buckhorn. Not sure what to make of that. That's interesting. Follow up. 
from one angle looking at the teddy bear, it almost looks like it is full of some kind of like yellowy golden amber substance, which like yeah. for for lack of anything else to interpret, I'm kind of like a creamed corn question mark. But I, I, I'm going to kind of I'm going to kind of like like stick a pin in that because uh, just kind of quickly round up yet another very uh, hornful episode. Um, we sort of see that Sylvia having given away all her money to her insane grandson phones her presumably ex-husband Ben Horn tells him all about it says she needs more money she'll call her lawyer you get the sense that they've been speaking largely through through lawyers for a very long time now that scene kind of ends with Ben kind of almost whispering to himself, Beverly, will you, will you go out to dinner with me? This this notion that, like, here's just a man kind of flailing for some kind of human interaction. You know what I see in the horns, though, and in Benjamin Horn in particular? And I think that this episode was kind of instructive. Uh, until this point, Ben was largely framed uh, by this sort of, like, well-meaning effort to live a better life, a sort of more redeemed life. He sort of renounced his womanizing ways. He's resisting the temptation to have an affair with his assistant, uh, who is married with a, with a very tough home life condition. So he doesn't want to complicate or bust that up. And until this episode, we got the sense that maybe he doesn't want to like wreck his own life. But 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 now we understand that. He's divorced. And so his idea that he doesn't want to meddle with, with Beverly even becomes more admirable because really then his only, only motivation not to sleep with her is that he doesn't want to disrupt her family and wreck her family. So it's all admirable. But then as we kind of expand the, the scope of his life and we see what's happened, what's going on, I think that the horns end up kind of working within this larger kind of like critique of America that Lynch and Frost are kind of putting forth of a of a of a country that regardless of what we're doing right now, we haven't like taken responsibility for the wreckage of our history. And that America itself has evolved wrong, you know. The metaphor and myth of superpower America established by God alight with the detonation of the atomic bomb, this well-meaning invention designed to end a war, but has ramifications of of materialism and death and destruction and the kind of culture that blew up around it and this intimation that that out of this big bang america evolved wrong and hasn't taken responsibility for its past sins and so that atomic bomb ends up standing for a larger metaphor of a country that hasn't properly reconstructed from its original sin right which is you know slavery and race so the horns end up kind of like being a metaphor for this too like because ben was a bad guy um and he did a lot of things and uh, horrible things he was involved in a lot of stuff and including uh one of the the, the key sins uh core sins of of twin peaks which is you know this misogynistic exploitation of women by men um and you've got the sense of a man who is 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 not taking proper rec- you know he's, he's yes. divorced but he's leaving the care of, of of johnny this this damaged fallen broken person to his wife and who knows where audrey is but all of the sins of the father if you will are, are all completely embodied in the metaphor of 
have Richard, who is just this evil little dick run amok. Yes, um, yes. And, uh, He's got to take responsibility for him, too. And they've been trying to do that the worst way possible by caretaking to him by just giving him money, um, which only just kind of makes him worse. Um, um, never indulge a child, um, <laughs> my parenting experience tells me. <laughs> like, right? But uh, that, that's what I see in the horns. So a well-meaning attempt to redeem, but also standing for bigger things that he either, A, hasn't taken responsibility for, or maybe he just can't. Yeah, you know, maybe yeah. they are just bigger than him that he can't take responsibility for, but he's still on the hook for. And so, what do we do about it? You know, so um, uh, so it kind of works within this larger kind of philosophical critique of America. Uh, Jeff, speaking of philosophical critiques of America, let's cut to uh, really the most explicit philosophical critique of America, Las Vegas itself, uh, where. We spent some time with characters who I think are utterly delightful and who I would happily spend many, many more episodes with. And to talk about curious family setups, the the two Mitchum brothers who seem to live with and indeed be in some sort of not even romantic, more kind of symbiotic relationship with Candy, Sandy, and Mandy, uh, who we first saw them in what we thought was just sort of a cool, random, you know, David Lynch being weird for the sake of weird cutaway many, many episodes ago. Uh, Now it turns out that they are like, I don't know, they're like figures of like myth or something for me now. They always wear the same the same bright pink outfits the the way that they move is sort of simul- simultaneously robotic and kind of musical they they almost seem like they're kind of like floating on the wind we see the Mitchum brother played by Robert Nepper who's sort of marking down <laughs> He's he's marking down details on what we clearly see is written down as the casino surveillance log. <laughs> For some reason, I thought that was really, really funny. As he's kind of doing that, Candy, one of the young women, uh, played by the actress Amy Shields, who I thought got a great showcase in this episode, she is sort of doing this elaborate bit of comedic business, chasing a fly around the room, trying to swat it. She kind of follows it over to where uh, the one Mitchum brother is uh, sitting there, writing away. She grabs the TV remote, and without even seeming to realize what she's doing, just like just like slaps it against his face when the fly lands on him. Uh, I just thought that, that scene was so delightful, and we sort of cut from that to her clearly still feeling awful about it as he is watching the news later that night. Um, just one quick note here, Jeff, that I'm just going to throw out there, even though I'm not sure this information will be fully digested. On the news, we kind of very clearly see this extended forecast for the week starting today, Thursday. Now, we got confirmation that in the Twin Peaks corner of this TV series, we are two days away from October 1st. That was sort of what what Frank Truman had told us. All signs point to the year of this show being 2014. In, in kind of rewatching the series, I've been trying to go back and figure out if that was ever explicitly stated, but just the way the dates have kind of lined up in the canon as far as being 25 years after the death of Laura Palmer indicates 2014. Now, uh, September 28th, 2014, or the 29th, whichever day would be two days away from October 1st, is not a Thursday. 
September 2014, uh, the 25th was a Thursday. This is all to say, what a confusing way of saying this. Uh, the dates in Las Vegas don't line up with the dates in Twin Peaks. Um, and also, Jeff, uh, Ed Harris is an older version of Sonny Jim. So there we go. We think we have uh, final, <laughs> final Westworld timeline theory confirmation here. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, I, I've had some interesting debates with uh, Twin Peaks fans on Twitter this past week about um, uh, a, th- this whole notion of d- it does seem that the, the, the different stories in Twin Peaks USA, at least from my point of view, are taking place in slightly different time fr- frames with the Buckhorn stuff roughly happening nine days before the Twin Peaks stuff. And we get the sense that Buckhorn and um, Vegas are on the same um, uh, timeline. So there's nine days between uh, Twin Peaks and everything else that's happening. This would seem to be confirmed by the way that Bill Hastings signed the, the photo identifying Major Briggs last week. He seems to be writing it as 920, although as many uh, fans have noted, he puts a weird flourish underneath the zero um, in 9.20 that makes it look like that he might be trying to apply a stem implying nine. <laughs> I don't think it reads that way. Um, so huge dis- like controversies within Twin Peaks fan, f- fan land about, w- w- about, about this whole issue. Yeah, the Mitchum brothers and uh, th- th- their three girls, it's a weird family vibe. It's like father-daughter but it's probably certainly sexual too. So you have maybe echoes of Leland and Laura as well. Mm-hmm. And this whole metaphor, and I take it as a metaphor of Candy searching for the bug, the fly in their casino apartment suite. There's something literally buggy about this relationship. And what was interesting in the aftermath of, of that comic bit of business of her trying to swat the fly by just hitting Rodney with the remote control, which I want to go back and look at again and see if maybe she did it on purpose. I'm wondering, you know, but something literally got into her, you know, she was not only distraught, but then after that, she was maybe oddly defiant. We got that scene where when Anthony from uh, Lucky Seven Insurance shows up um, to execute a scam on behalf of Duncan, uh, Duncan Todd, I believe is his name. But um, the girls are aligned in their position in the, in the surveillance room, like, you know, in their own sort of dreamy state. And when we first saw this several episodes ago, they seem to exist solely for the men, right? There are objects there to be, you know, to be admired, to be looked at, and then to be activated with a request or a word, right? But this time around, when the, when, when the Mitchum brothers tell Candy to go down and get that guy, get Anthony and bring him up, she doesn't listen. And it's almost now there, there's, a, there's, there's a slight rebellion taking place here where her own sort of exoticness and weirdness exists for herself and her own pleasure and amusement. And she resents being taken out of that to go work for the man, you know, her, her, her man. Then she goes downstairs and instead of bringing him right back up, 
up. She executes this sort of like rather subversive drama in which she's explaining to him the air conditioning systems of the OV. And it's just driving them crazy. Like, why isn't she doing what she's supposed to be doing? Which is interesting. You know, she's not obeying her program um, as a woman. And again, this sort of like the paradox of them, how there's these, these violent evil mobster guys, but they have some sort of affection for these women. Like uh, at one point, James Belushi says something like, like, obviously there's something wrong with Candy, but they can't get rid of her because where is she going to go? She has, you know? she, she has nowhere so, to like, go. Yeah. <laughs> she I mean, has nowhere to go. So they have a sense of responsibility for them, but but they're, they're, they're kind in this way, but they're so blind to everything else and their privilege and their manness and their power roles that they can't, you know, that, that they kind of are, can't see how many other ways that are sort of like profoundly like diminishing them as people. So I know there were a lot of people that had some issues with that when with candy's first introduction and like what does it mean in terms of lynch's use of women which is a source of controversy among critics but i think that ultimately the metaphor of what all this stands for is very sympathetic to the you know it it understands the critique and is playing to it you know what i mean yeah definitely i mean i i liked all that stuff i also just loved that um you sort of mentioned this elaborate scam that Anthony is pulling off. I'm struggling with this because it just seems like the show is just like, (laughs) it seems like the show was kind of like, how are we going to bring this all together? Oh, I know we'll have, we'll have Duncan Todd say, and I quote my business rivals and bitter enemies, the Mitchum brothers, this, (laughs) this, this sudden, this sudden unity of two very different strands of the Las Vegas plot line. Also folding in Anthony. It's like, it's like all at once. And I mean, I, I want to give credit and say that like, you know, maybe this has been architected in a really lovely way. I'm also totally okay with it if Lynch Frost were just kind of like, all right, like, let's say the guy for the insurance company and the bad guy who's in cahoots with, with Dirty Cooper and the Mitchum brothers, they're all kind of part of the same psychodrama, it turns out. You know, Anthony is just like the local corrupt insurance insurance investigator. However, we got to the moment of Tom Sizemore sort of repeating over and over and over again, you have an enemy and Douglas Jones. I I found that to be ultimately (laughs) quite delightful. And of course, then, you know, we sort of cut to the two Mitchum brothers, sort of, you know, back in their house, kind of ties sort of undone. (laughs) And (laughs) Rodney Mitchum, the character played by Robert Nepper, says, now I know how Brando felt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like like the, yeah, the yeah. way the way that we got there was kind of fuzzy for me but i am glad that we got there and jeff dare i say it things are really converging in las vegas <laughs> <laughs> as we say every week but it also opened our eyes to oh okay so everything's coming together and now we need to enter maybe a new critical frame of mind which is how are things going to come together and will they come together well oh Oh, um, Jeff. Speaking, yes. No, you do it. You do it. You do it. <laughs> speaking of coming together. <laughs> holy night! What a segue. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm really sorry. Uh, continue. Right. Continue, please. So let's let's talk about Dougie Jones or or Duper as I'm now kind of like uh, coming around to calling him Duper and Janie E. 
Uh, Janie E. took Cooper to uh, see, uh, at long last, Dr. Ben for his checkup. And, uh, you know, like, man, like, since his reincarnation, uh, Dougie's lost a lot of weight. Um, and, um, and he's extremely fit. And, and Janie E. went from sort of, like, looking at, at Dougie through old eyes, through all of a sudden new eyes, like, oh, wow, like, you've lost a lot of weight, Dougie. And, um and your blood pressure's great and 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 you look fantastic. Wow. My I, my husband is good looking. Maybe the guy that I once married, I don't know. I mean, meanwhile, Duper is just kind of like looking at like the doctor's stethoscope. I was wondering if maybe he was vaguely recalling Doc Hayward. Um he was admiring this sort of like, you know, the the the, the blood pressure gauge on his arm and like, well, what's this doing to me? They go home. Dougie's eating his chocolate cake. And Janie is just making overtures, like, you know, do you find me attractive? I find you attractive. And this is all kind of going right over uh, Dougie's head because in his man-child, like, blank state, he doesn't yet understand how all of his equipment works and, and or even the concept of sex. Cut to they're in bed, they're going at it, like... She's on top. He's on the bottom. She's really enjoying it, even though I, I don't really get the sense that that he's doing much for her. But 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 she's making it work. <laughs> and, uh, but his arms are like flapping, like he's trying to fly. His eyes are like all googly. Like this is just the greatest thing ever. And meanwhile, she's like clearly uh, enraptured in an ecstasy and just singing out his name at one point, Dougie. Meanwhile, cut to down the hall, like poor uh, Sonny Jim Jones sits upright in bed as if roused from the worst nightmare ever. Like, what's going on? Like, what's daddy doing to mommy? Um, and, uh, and, and innocence lost is writ comically but oddly blissfully in this in, in this moment in an episode filled with lost innocence in various ways. And then we get to that kind of like aftermath moment where Duper and Janie are cuddling and um, she says, I love you. And in a moment of a lot of enmity between people, between men and women, men and women and family structures, a lot of bleakness, it was super silly but it was also kind of super sweet too, and a juxtaposition to a, a lot of darkness and bleakness and broken relationship in an episode sketching the fallenness of Twin Peaks USA. Yeah, I mean, like, like let's just talk for one quick second here, Jeff, because David Lynch has filmed some of the most, you know, disturbing, stylized, melancholic, symphonic, whatever you want to call them, sex scenes in movie history, you know, from, from Blue Velvet to Lost Highway to Mulholland Drive. I was so taken with the idea that this was like a, a you know sex scene out of an Adam Sandler movie, complete with Comic Lachlan's hands sort of like bucking in unison as if he were like flapping his wigs or something like that. And somehow this wound up being like the most like you know sweet vision of do- of domestic lovemaking. And I, I just I, I found that you know goofy as all hell, but somehow as you said in an episode filled. Of filled with total darkness, oddly quite endearing. Um, we've already texted about this, Jeff. This probably means bad things are happening for the Jones family pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like you, you captured my imagination for an idea a minute ago, uh, kind of marrying kind of like all of these sort of beleaguered women and kind of asking, uh, making that point in the context of a question that we ask, who is the next Laura Palmer? And then kind of like, wondering if maybe the spirit of Laura Palmer is about to vengefully enter the world. You captured my imagination for the idea of Laura possessing all of the beleaguered, not not taking physical form like in a reincarnated way, but like taking possession, if you will, or or of all of the beleaguered women and then rising up against their male oppressors. It's, it's uh, I don't know what, what I'm about, to, where I'm going there. Uh, not good for men, probably, and maybe we deserve it. Rising up like a big red balloon, you might say, Jeff. That's a good note to end on because I want to save my uh, red balloon theory for after I actually watch the red balloon, but just wanted to give a quick shout out to at Greg R. Wright on Twitter, who I've been so hot on this red circle, red sphere theory lately and he was the one who pointed out to me that in the middle of Dr. Amp's rant he mentioned a red balloon again not sure what this means if you have theories about that or theories about anything really tweet at us he's at EW Doc Jensen I'm at Darren Franich not a doctor if you have a longer theory we're going to dive into the mailbag sometime soon lots to dig into in these last few episodes you can always email us at twinpeaks at ew.com hey while you're at it do you like what you're hearing we hope so let us know Give us a rate and review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you there. And uh, we will be down at Comic-Con this week uh, covering the the Twin Peaks aspect of Comic-Con in some exciting ways. Keep your eyes peeled for that on EW.com. And uh, we'll be back next week talking all about Twin Peaks Chapter 11. <laughs>